Play. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. All right. Shout out to our song selector. Selena's not a Jew. <laughs> what? I'm not. <laughs> but we are. The last I checked, yep, I wasn't. Are. All right, we guys. Are. We are back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM. The voice of, of Beyonce. What is that? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> kidding. I'm just kidding. All right, guys. So we're starting off the show talking about Cuba, Cuba. You know, I try to mix it up a little bit. I just got back from Mexico, okay? Cuba. <laughs> Wait, did you just get back from a vacation? We weren't sure. We didn't have know. Have I not mentioned that? Not mentioned have it? I not we mentioned have not that? seen your pictures. I just want to make sure that that's where you are. Okay. What was your favorite thing to do in Mexico? Cocktail. How much water did you drink? I drank a lot of water. No, I did not drink any water in Mexico, Stanley. I drank the bottled water, well, not the Mexico's water. Mexico's water is better than Flint's water, but so. You, but you mm. know what? I almost did. I was at the bar and I was like, did you shower in bottled water? No, no, no. I was like, well, I went on a cruise. So I was at the bar and I was like, can I have a cup of water? And I was like, oh shoot, I mean a bottle of water. Wait, you were on a cruise. It's not. No, well, you mind. get off the cruise. You said, never mind. Carry on. Anyway, yeah, and then you have to jump over the wall. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the wall that doesn't exist yet. Or does All right. It? I don't I mean, know. There is a fence. Well, on that note, let's talk about Cuba and end the conversation on Mexico because guess who's going to Cuba? Our president. In how long? A few more hours. He will be touching down, and this will mark. And make him the first president to visit the communist-run island in 88 years. And he's scheduled to arrive in Havana for a historic two-day trip. While he is there, he will meet with Cuban President Raul Castro. He will also talk to anti-government activists and attend a baseball game between the Tampa Bay Rays and the Cuban national team. Why? Because baseball is something that Cubans and Americans both have a historic pastime for. Um, one of our favorite pastimes in both countries. Tampa Bay's gonna lose. Yeah, they're gonna lose. <laughs> That's your bad. prediction. Yeah. Yes, they're gonna get the like. Yeah, Cuba is like stacked with pitching and hitting. Yeah. Oh boy, they have the best baseball Tampa. players. And it's Sorry, like they Tampa. don't even have a full roster yet. It's spring training, so like they're not even at full strength. Well, you know, some of those players may now be able to easily come here, but I know we're gonna get into that later. It's in gonna segment. walk right over. To the, never mind. Go ahead, Selena. All right, so the president, so the president's trip, it actually comes 15 months after he announced the restoration of diplomatic ties between the U.S. and Cuba. I don't know if you guys remember, but it was December 2014 when he started taking these uh, uh, steps to advance the U.S. effort to normalize our relations with Cuba following a 54-year frozen relationship that first began in 1961 when both countries cut ties. Since then, the president has made good on his promise to normalize our relations with Cuba, and he's made tremendous progress in establishing a diplomatic relationship. Last year, he uh, he removed, excuse me, the U.S. removed Cuba from the U.S. terrorism list. We also restored direct phone lines between the two nations, and both countries reopened embassies in the other's capital. More recently, direct mail service has been resumed, and the president was finally able to mail a letter to his pen pal in Cuba. And they might even go out for some Cuban coffee, which would be nice. I wish I was there, but I'm not Sasha and Malia, unfortunately. Um, And... Also, he also uh, the U.S. Po- um, Postal Service, they actually, so they carried the letters from the U.S. to the island, um, and they used a plane to do that, obviously. Um, other, diplom- other recent developments include um, a new work permit that gives Cuban nationals a chance to earn a salary here in the U.S. That's big. And 
there has been another um, new rule that encourages Americans to travel to Cuba for person-to-person educational tours. Before, you could only go with a group, and you had to prove that it was educational. So I guess that's what Jay-Z and Beyonce did a few years ago when they went to Cuba for their honeymoon. I guess that's how they got clearance. They just said it was educational. Yeah, I don't know. Did. That's how a lot of it people go. all of us. Um, well, all- <laughs> I mean, there's other ways that people go, usually by flying to Canada and then flying from Canada to Cuba. Or okay. illegally. <laughs> Or, or human trafficking. What? Okay. <laughs> I hope not. Um, I mean, a lot of people forget, like, tourists from Europe have been going to Cuba for years. Right. And not Cuba's in, like, awesome. large numbers, but they've been going. Yeah. And so we were talking about baseball, right? Another guideline will actually allow the major league teams to sign Cuban baseball players. So this, subsequently, will have a major impact on major league baseball. So we can look forward to that. However, before we discuss these recent developments between the U.S. and Cuban ties, we actually have a very special guest on the line who will help us delve into our history with Cuba and figure out the origins of our bad blood. We have on the line with us Sebastian Arcos, who is the Associate Director of the Cuban Research Institute at Florida International University. He was also born in Havana. He served one year in prison for attempting to leave Cuba illegally in 1981. Then in 1987, he joined the Cuban Committee for Human Rights, which was the first independent human rights organization in Cuba. Plus, he advised the U.S. Department of State on issues concerning human rights in Cuba between 1998 and 2000. So we got the right guest to talk about this, basically. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Good morning, Sebastian. Good morning, Selena. Thank you again very much for the invitation. It's an honor. Yes, it is an honor and a pleasure to have you with us. I wanted to start off um, talking about, so so like I mentioned, uh, the president is going to Cuba today. Um, while he's there, he's going to do a lot of things. But one thing he's not going to do, he's not going to meet with former Cuban president Fidel Castro, who we know established the first communist state in the Western Hemisphere after overthrowing a U.S.-backed dictator in 1959. Could you start off talking more about the Communist Party of Cuba that was established under Castro's regime in brief? Actually, the Communist Party originated in Cuba in the 1920s, and Castro had nothing to do with that Communist Party until he took over uh, the government in 1959. At that time, he essentially co-opted the old Communist Party and took over as the leader of the Communist Party. A few of the old leaders remain. Uh, some of the old leaders were purged, and Fidel Castro uh, essentially controlled the Communist Party and turned it into the uh, not only the dominant, but the only party in Cuba for the last 60 years. Well, wow, guys, if you're just tuning in, we're speaking about U.S.-Cuban relations and our history, and we have on online with us Sebastian Arcos from the Cuban Research Institute at Florida International University. You know, we're speaking about Fedor um, Castro, who has an extremely polarizing legacy. You know, I was, I was reading up on him. On one hand, his regime was successful in reducing illiteracy, stamping out racism, and improving public health care. He also brought electricity to the countryside, provided full employment, and built new schools and medical facilities. 
But when you think of Castro, most of us just think about how he um, got rid of all opposition newspapers. He jailed thousands of political opponents. He limited the amount of land somebody can own. And he abolished private business. I wanted to ask you, Sebastian, why did he take this, this stance? I mean, he was doing so much good. Why, why did he take this stance? Well, uh, one thing had to go necessarily with the other. Uh, the problem here is to understand the personality of Fidel Castro. Uh, he is essentially a man who lived his entire life with one thing in mind, absolute power. And he was willing to do anything he had to do to reach absolute power, and he did. So in 1959, after he toppled that military dictatorship with the support of the majority of the Cuban population, who were much against that particular military dictator, he had two choices. He could go back to the 1940 Constitution, Cuban Constitution, who was democratic and center-left, or he could take um, the site of the Soviet Union, which guaranteed him absolute power, for the rest of his life. So he obviously decided what would guarantee him that absolute power, his uh, price. So he went with the Soviet Union very early on in, in 1960. He had already sided with the Soviet Union, both economically and politically. And when you side with the Soviet Union, you necessarily have to copy the traditional uh, Communist Party hierarchy and methods of the Soviet Union, which are notoriously repressive. So there was an immediate crackdown on Cuban civil society. Thousands of people were shot. Tens of thousands of people were put in prison, some of them for very long sentences, 25, 30 years. Hundreds of thousands of Cuba left the island. Right now, more than a Cuban, there are a million Cubans live in the United States. There are more Cubans all over the world. And the economy, the Cuban economy, which was, according to all economists, in a period of takeoff in the 1950s, was essentially disassembled and turned into a central command economy under the control of Fidel Castro. If you guys are just tuning in and you want to call in with a question or a comment, you can give us a call at 212-650-6903. Again, that is 212-650-6903. Sebastian, I have a question for you in relation to the um, former dictator that um, Castro was able to overthrow. What was the opposition to this dictator? I know it was U.S. appointed or U.S. supported, but what was their problem with this dictator or this leader? What, what, what was this person doing that was so problematic? Well, the, the first thing that he did was to ignore the 1940 Constitution. Now, you have to understand that the support Castro had to overthrow Batista's dictatorship was precisely because Cubans wanted to go back to the 1940 Constitution, which was, again, a fully democratic, center-left Constitution. When he betrayed that, most of the people who had supported him in the fight against Batista turned around and fought him. There was a guerrilla movement in Cuba from 1960 to 1967, operating on that assumption that Fidel Castro had betrayed the revolution. Actually, there's a whole historic uh, theory in, in, uh, in the books, in, in the academia, that is called the betrayed 
revolution theory because uh, most of the people you find here in Miami today that oppose Fidel Castro at some point in the 1950s fought alongside Fidel Castro against Batista. That was the key issue, the betrayal of the promise to return the 1940 Constitution. Guys, if you're just now tuning in and you have a question <clears throat> excuse me, or a comment about Cuba, its history, and communism, um, you can call in now. The phone lines are open. It's 212-650-6903. I understand we do have a call online now. We have Brother Omar who would like to let his voice be heard. Brother Omar, good morning. Good morning, and thank you so much. This is one of my favorite subjects. First of all, I remember Fidel uh, Viva, Viva Cuba, Viva Fidel Castro. I remember him. He was one of my mentors in my youth. I remember when he met with El uh, Hodge Malik Shabazz, better known as Malcolm X, with that famous meeting that he had at the Teresa Hotel. Also, when, whenever Fidel came to Harlem, he always went to the Abyssinia Baptist Church, uh, Reverend Powell's old church, uh, by uh, Reverend Butts. And I remember speeches, I still have the speeches, when he said if it wasn't for the brothers and the prayers of the brothers and sisters in Harlem, he said I would have been killed long ago. So many of the American presidents and, and have been trying to kill me. And it's because of, the pres- because of the presence of the brothers and sisters in Harlem that I'm still alive. And I want the brother, if he might, talk about... Uh, Fidel and his love for the black community here in Harlem and uh, in the diaspora. And when uh, Fidel was in power, how he uh, was sent for freedom fighters uh, to uh, South Africa in Zimbabwe and fought with the troops of Nelson Mandela. And I quote the great Fidel Castro when he said, it was Cuban blood. Uh, brothers and our brothers and sisters, we died for the brothers and sisters in Africa that we're revolutionaries. How Fidel has some of the most uh, sought after doctors in the world, how he, uh, the Cuban people are, uh, th- their longevity and how they have free education. So I want the brother to interject if he might, if he has any knowledge about that. And once again, uh, uh, long live Cuba. I hope uh, before I make my transition, this is one of the places I want to go to before it's turned into a Disneyland. Thank you so much for your time. Viva la Cuba. Sebastian, can you respond to that? That was a great question about how Fidel Castro had a love and affinity for the black community and people right here in Harlem where we're based. Uh, yes, well, that was a long question. Uh, Fidel Castro is unquestionably one of the brightest political minds that we've had in the Western Hemisphere. And he was smart enough to understand uh, that he needed to cultivate the traditional opposition to the traditional uh, power brokers in the United States because his intention was to make an enemy of the United States. Obviously, when you do that, and he did travel to Harlem in 1959 very early on, and he did cultivate the African-American community intensively. What is ironic is that in Cuba, where more than 50% of the population is of African descent, Fidel Castro maintained a pristine white political leadership that still remains in power. All you have to do is go to the Cuban uh, Communist Party and check out the Politburo of the uh, Cuban Communist Party, and you will see 
that 99.9% of the members are white in a country where more than 50% of the population is black. It is indeed true that he intervened in Africa and helped, in a way, with the collapse of the racist government in South Africa. You have to keep in mind that Fidel Castro was fighting the Cold War at the time, and he intervened in Africa on behalf of the Soviet Union, not on behalf of the African people. It happened to be that his defeat of the South African forces in Namibia led and contributed to the collapse of the white racist government in South Africa. But that uh, goes to Mandela and his followers, not to Fidel Castro. Keep in mind, he was fighting the Cold War. He was not fighting for the Africans. Thank you so much for that, Sebastian. And we appreciate your comment and calling in, Brother Omar, as always. Again, guys, if you do want to call in, the number is 212-650-6903. We are going to go on a quick break. But when we come back, we will continue the conversation about um, the history of of U.S. and Cuba ties, the history of just communism in Cuba, and then we'll talk about the recent progress by the Obama administration. Stay tuned. We was OG like DOC, remember that? My TOC was quite OD, ID my facts. Now POV of you and me. Brenda, 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 Brenda. I be going to the <laughs> store, eating fried chicken and rice. Listen, I had brunch. Had waffles. Chicken and waffles is nice. And some weird, weird hot sauce. Yeah, right? That was like, it's like the weirdest hot sauce. Like chewy hot sauce, but it was good. It was good. It was strange, though. We'll talk about this later. Yes, yes. 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 All right, guys. So we're back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, where we're having a great conversation about U.S. and Cuban relations. Again, our president will be touching down in Cuba in a few more hours. Um, and we're also talking about uh, the, the history of Cuba, right? The Communist Party. Fidel Castro, and we have a great guest on the line who is sharing in that conversation with us. His name is Sebastian Arcos, and he is the Associate Director of the Cuban Research Institute at Florida International University. Now, before we went on break, we had a call with Brother Omar who talked about how Fidel Castro um, had an affinity for the black community and um, specifically um, was here in Harlem uh, where he spoke at the Abyssinian um, Baptist Church, which is huge, right? Now, listen, did you want to chime in on that? Yeah, and I know our guest already touched on this, but a lot of what, you know, th- so well, first I wanted to go back to something that Stanley mentioned at the beginning that a lot of those good things came at a cost. So, yes, there was health care and education and other things, but they came at a cost of human rights. And specifically to respond to Brother Omar in the second half of that, which is also that Castro coming here also came at a cost, which is Castro came here and he garnered support from the black community. But when he went back to Cuba... You know, there was extremely racial undertones going on in Cuba and people who were darker skinned in Cuba suffered at some of the worst human rights abuses compared to people that were lighter skinned. So it's to me, it's like almost like a dog and pony show that you come to America and you garner the support of the African-American community to further your agenda. But at the same time, you're treating darker skinned people in your own country. They're getting the shortest end of the stick. So I was hoping that our guests could address that a little more in detail before we move on to talk about the next part of this conversation. Absolutely, and I think you got it exactly right. Uh, It's important to make the difference between what's political propaganda and what's reality. Uh, And Fidel Castro always sold himself as a sort of a uh, a Robin Hood of the poor and downtrodden, and particularly for foreign um, uh, countries, foreign public opinion. But 
you have to look at the realities of what happened in Cuba. And I already mentioned the fact, easily proved, that he kept a complete white leadership in a country where the majority of the population has African roots. There are many uh, black Cubans who today, after having been raised in Castro's Cuba, claim that these, his regime is more racist in many subtle ways than many other uh, previous regimes during the Republican times in Cuba. But <clears throat> it's important also to move to the other topic, the topic of the prices that you pay or that you're willing to pay to obtain certain guarantees from your government, specifically in the health and education sector. Let's assume for a moment that health and education in Cuba were perfect after Fidel Castro came to power and continue to be perfect today, which is not the case. But let's assume for a moment, are you, as a free, independent human being, willing to give away all of your political and economic freedoms just to get free health care and education? Are you willing to give a pass to the white, racist African regime in, in South Africa if they had provided free health and education to the black population in South <clears throat> Africa? Will you be willing to give that credit to Adolf Hitler in Germany if he had provided free health care and education to all Germans? Sebastian, you raise a great point and, um, and a great question. And I just wanted to point out, and, and, uh, and you can delve into this. So Fidel Castro also abolished legalized discrimination under his regime and is noted for stamping out racism. Um, was the racism going on at that time a sign of the times, or did he implement some, some laws that, that effectively hurt Afro-Latinos in the country? No, racism was officially banned from Cuba. You could not speak of racism in Cuba uh, because you will be committing a crime, essentially. You could not exercise racism in Cuba because you will be committing a crime. So in that sense, he essentially stamped out racism. That doesn't mean, however, that racism was effectively abolished. It was not. And when you look at the political leadership in the Communist Party, you see it there. And I'm going to give you a more recent example. There's been a revival of public, of, I'm sorry, private businesses in Cuba in the last three years, uh, created by Raul Castro, who made an opening. About half a million Cubans are now working independently from the state. When you look at that half a million Cubans, you see that 90% of them are white, not black. How come in a country where half of the population is of African descent, you have a majority of white people controlling businesses, private businesses in Cuba. Again, there are more subtle ways to see racism in Cuba today than before. You have to consider to remember that you're dealing with a very smart man who was always keen at manipulating public opinion. So he creates one image on his trip, on his speeches, but he maintains a different reality in the country. All right. Um, on that note, we do have another call on the line. We have Carl, who would like to let his voice be heard. Carl, go ahead. Yes. Good, good afternoon, gang. Good afternoon, Sebastian. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. 
Yes. Oh, okay. Um, that was a pretty good deduction. You know, it gives me a reason to do a little more research on the subject. My 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 basic synopsis on it is that uh, racism didn't begin <clears throat> didn't begin with uh, Castro, and it, you know, it was a long time ago. With you know, oh, you can go no, back to Christopher, right? You know, go, you can go back as far as Christopher Columbus stuff. So he might have been, you know, coming through something that you know he didn't invent. However, that was a great, great analysis of yours. My, my my position on it is that, you know, throughout history, I noticed even with uh, the David and Goliath story, it's always, you know, it seems that always been, the, he was a hero. These these figures were heroes at one time. And then all of a sudden, the, their own people seemed to uh, wanted to overthrow them. Throughout history, you can go back as far as Stalin, uh, uh, Genghis Khan, uh, you mentioned Hitler thing. You know, you, you know, it always seemed to have been this thing. But my basic snapshot of it seems as though when you come from an extremist uh, uh, disposition as far as dealing with uh, human uh, people are concerned, it seems that it almost takes another extremity to kind of balance it out. And, and so I think that it's it's been a process in between with with um, with well Castro, and right now it's a unfinished product. But um, my question to you is, like, uh, as far as Che Guevara, do you figure that he was more of a, a more of a, a, a conducive towards blacks in Africa, the Congo's um, freedom fighter? Uh, yes. Well, Che Guevara is, is a is a fascinating figure in in this uh, history. Che Guevara was a convinced communist, unlike Fidel Castro, who was not. Uh, che Guevara believed in the uh, dogma of communism to the point that he was willing to sacrifice everything on that behalf. Fidel Castro was never willing to do that. He was always a political calculator, uh, not a believer like uh, Guevara. That makes uh, Guevara's figure so attractive so, to many people because he was consistent when he believes. He believed that a communist leader should be poor like the people, and he lived a poor life in Cuba. I mean, a modest life in Cuba. He believed that any uh, communist should be willing to sacrifice his own life in order to bring freedom to other people. So he went to Africa, to Congo, and fought there. He failed. He went back to Cuba and then went to Bolivia, and fought in Bolivia for that, and was finally killed. Fidel Castro, keep in mind, remained in Cuba all this time. That's what makes Guevara's figure so attractive. He was uh, a man who had certain beliefs, and he followed those beliefs. However, that could be a description for Osama bin Laden, too, who believed in his religion, and believed that it was his duty to kill innocent Americans in order to achieve his goal. So we have to be very careful with people like Guevara, because they are very, very dangerous. However, when you compare him with Fidel, you see the clear difference between someone who was a believer and someone who was not, who was just an opportunist. 
Guys, we are back. I mean, well, we've clearly been back, but we're talking to Sebastian Arcos about Cuba. Great conversation. I do want to switch gears a little bit because we got a great history lesson on communism, um, the Communist Party under Castro and what he really did under his regime. Um, I wanted to switch gears because, again, President Obama is landing there soon. And um, as I mentioned at the beginning of the segment, uh, there are a lot of new work rules in place, travel rules in place, um, and also things in place that will affect Cubans and Cuban baseball players. Why are these uh, measures so important, Sebastian? And what type of impact will they have on Americans, Cubans, and Major League Baseball? Well, you mentioned a long list of of, uh, changes that have occurred in the last 15 months since President Obama uh, announced uh, his uh, change in uh, U.S.-Cuba policy. And it's important to highlight the fact that all these changes have occurred from the United States and not from Cuba. Cuba has not responded. The United States moves in any way. And many of the critics of the president argue that the problem with this policy is not its principle, which is correct. We need to talk to our enemies. We need to deal with our differences. We need to engage our enemies in conversation and dialogue. That is all good. The problem is that we need to expect something from our enemies in this dialogue. And so far, the United States has moved significantly in changing its old policy of isolation and turn it into a policy of engagement with the purpose of reaching out to the Cuban population and empowering the Cuban population, providing more access to Internet, providing more access to hard cash so they can develop their private businesses independently from the government. But none of that can work if the government in Cuba maintains the current level of control of the economy. They control 90% of the economy. They have a monopoly of import, export, banking, and finances. So every dollar that goes into the island has to go first through the government before it reaches, if it ever reaches, the population. So that's a dilemma that President Obama has. Right. So switching gears a little bit, I have a question, and I don't know if this is something that you can answer, Sebastian, but I'll, I'll ask it anyway and put it out to the panel as well. Um, so something, you know, bringing it back to the U.S. election, of course, because everything that we're thinking about now, uh, we relate back to this election and how crazy it's been. Um, two, I mean, one of them has since dropped out, but two of the biggest front runners of the Republican uh, race are both of Cuban descent, both uh, first generation Americans who are very, very conservative, very pro-capitalist, anti-communist, um, whose parents are, um, from what's been written, um, very anti-Castro. Are they, so with, with Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz, do you think that they are an anomaly, that this is, um, you know, as, as a first-generation Cuban-American, both of them, right? They're, and they're both very different people from very different parts of the country with very different religious backgrounds as well, but both very conservative. Is this something that we see as an effect um, with Cuban-Americans in the United States um, as an effect of Castro's regime, that we have people who grew up in that or who had raised kids in the United States who were raised to be very pro-capitalist, anti-communist? I think uh, both um, Rubio and Cruz are 
uh, examples of these uh, uh, first-generation Cuban Americans, uh, people who were born in this country, of uh, uh, Cuban parents who immigrated here as exiles in the in the uh, first waves of immigration out of Cuba, and they. They are the proof of the truth of the melting pot. They have become Americans in many ways. Uh, they speak Spanish, but they are true-blooded Americans. And yes, they are conservatives. Uh, the Cuban-American community is a, an exception in the overall Latin community in the United States because they tend to be more conservative. When you look at the background, you understand why they escaped a communist regime whereas other Latin American um, um, immigrants into the United States usually escape uh, oligarchic uh, right-wing military dictatorships. So that explains the background, and that explains why they joined different parties in this fight. But they are true Americans. They represent American um, ideals. And in that sense... They are opposed to many of the things that President Obama is doing, but they are not opposed to the principle that it is important to talk to your enemies and to reach out to your enemies and engage your enemies. I think the big mistake that many made in this country is that uh, those who supported the old policy supported a policy of all stick and no carrot. And many believe that those who support this new policy are supporting exactly the opposite, a policy that is all carrot and not stick. And it is important to tack or at least to try to achieve a middle ground in foreign policy because things are never simple in foreign policy. I think that's a great point. Uh, you know, and actually, um, I want to ask a, a question also about the uh, the politics, sort of, but I just wanted to make a comment before I do it, which is, I think it's important for some of our listeners and just for us in general as Americans to note that there is a difference between social democracy and democratic, you know, left-leaning uh, policies like Bernie Sanders proposes and a command economy uh, like you see in communism. However, at, you know, as towards Jackie's point about Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz and some of the other politics, sometimes that gets lost and they try and draw this connection between, you know, Bernie Sanders wants to have, um, you know, health care for all uh, that's based on a tax the rich system and uh, when the government just takes over the entire central economy and those are different things and I think that we should note that for the listeners but that being noted there has been a lot of blowback um, about this trip and about the opening up of relations with Cuba on both the left and on the right um, and a lot of that comes from the fact that the president will not be issuing an ultimatum to Mr. Castro regarding human rights abuses now I almost see this as a little bit hypocritical in a way because when Nixon went to China, um, which was also a communist country um, and still is a communist country, there was some blowback. But Nixon didn't go there issuing ultimatums about human rights either. So I was just hoping that you could maybe talk about for a second the parallels between the president's trip to Cuba um, and between Nixon's trip to China uh, back during that time and whether or not these criticisms of the president and him not addressing the human rights issue directly are really warranted or whether that's more just political policy. You have a, a, an excellent question. And foreign policy, it's a delicate balance between what you want to achieve and what is possible on the ground. You cannot waltz into a country and 
give lectures to that country's uh, leadership on what they ought or what not to do. It is more a question of pointing to the United States and uh, the United Nations and the UN Human Rights Commission as an example to follow, as an example of success of an open society. The president has a huge challenge in Cuba because obviously Cuba is a repressive state with no political and economic rights. But he cannot just go there and finger Fidel Ca uh, Raul Castro and say, you have to open up the society tomorrow. He has to walk a very thin line. He has to show respect for the nation, not just the government, the nation. And considering the turbulent relationship between the two nations before, it is particularly important that the president of the United States doesn't seem to be dictating what Cubans ought to do. And I think everybody agrees that the president's plan of essentially reminding Cubans that their destiny, their future, is in their own hands. And that's what's more important about the trip. Of course, human rights are huge because they represent a significant part of the agenda of foreign policy for the United States everywhere in the world. So the president must touch on the issue of human rights and make very clear that human rights progress is important to continue the relationship with the United States. But there's a big difference between suggesting and showing with example and dictating. And that's the fine line the president has to walk there. Um, you know, we have to wrap up this conversation, Sebastian, but before we do, I wanted to mention that Obama said that he believes there will eventually be congressional support to uplift the embargo against Cuba and that the next president of the United States, whether they're Democrat or Republican, will be able to do so. Do you agree with the president's prediction that the embargo will be uplifted in the near future? Uh, probably not. I am afraid um, the embargo is codified into law by Congress. Only Congress can change that. And right now, the support for the policy is strong in Congress. The president has to show progress in Cuba, and that's part of his challenge. The Cubans have to give something in return to convince Congress that it's a good idea to eliminate whatever is left of the policy. Keep in mind, the president has carved the embargo out, uh, maybe 40% of it remains. Uh, but that part that remains is key because it grants access to Cuba to international uh, financial institutions, to U.S. credit, and to U.S. direct investment, foreign investment, which are fundamental for the development of a country like Cuba, only 35 uh, minutes away from the United States by plane. All right, and thank you so much again, Sebastian. We appreciate the comments and commentary and expertise that you provided us here today with on Cuba. We do have to bring the conversation to a close. Um, and I want to, before we do, um, do we still have Sebastian online? I want to give him a chance to just tell everyone how he can get in contact with him and also his organization. Absolutely. We are located at Florida International University. It's the public university in Miami. Our website is www. CRI, that's Cuban Research Institute, dot FIU, that's Florida International University, dot EDU. And we have a full website uh, providing information of all kinds, links of all kinds, history, uh, 
uh, news, um, commentary, academic papers. Uh, the longest running, by the way, the longest running poll on Cuban Americans anywhere in the world, 20 years uh, ongoing. It's a huge source of information for anybody who is willing to be well informed on Cuba. We have the largest group of faculty members working on Cuba anywhere in the United States, more than 50. Um, we are the resource for Cuban and Cuban American studies in the United States. Wow. Thank you again, Sebastian. We appreciate that. And before we close out, I want to say this. Even though some congressional members think it's a bad idea to uplift the embargo with Cuba, I mean, that's ridiculous at this point. For the last 54 years, even more than that, we have isolated Cuba. And you know what's been happening? More human rights abuse and, 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 and no interaction with this country. We do not need to isolate and ostracize Cuba. What we need to do is aggressively engage with them. Why why not lead by example? Why not start doing business with Cuba? Why not invest in the people and invest businesses in there and show them how to treat workers, show them how to treat people who are, are, who are who have some political dissent or opposition to the government, show them how to uh, maintain a rally and let other people's voices be heard. We shouldn't be isolating and ostracizing them. It's leading to nothing. And it also makes sense for us to be able to sell uh, sell and do business with Cuba and to work with the Cuban government to show them best practices. I also wanted to mention Cuba invests so much in their medicine and their medical care. They ha actually have um, ways to treat and prevent lung cancer. We're not benefiting from that because we refuse to have ties and diplomatic relations with this country, which invests so much not only in medicine and in education, but in health care. And I just wanted to say, like uh, Alyssa brought up the hypocrisy of the U.S., it's also very hypocritical of the U.S. to damn and condemn uh, Cuba for their human rights abuses when we have the, basically the same thing going on. We... At Guantanamo Bay alone, there is no due process. We are holding people there, whether they were convicted, without even putting them on trial. That is abuse of their human rights. That goes against our Constitution and our principles. We aren't supposed to be doing that. How dare we tell Cuba what to do when we can't even lead by example like that? We have police brutality here. We have institutional racism here. We don't even have access to free health care and education. We don't care about those human rights for our people here in America. America, uh, but Cuba does. I think we need to learn some lessons from Cuba, and Cuba obviously can learn some lessons from us, but it goes hand in hand. And that's why we need to continue to have diplomatic relations with this country of Cuba. These are two great countries, and we need to work together. On that note, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we're coming back with the News Roundup. Don't go anywhere. Kills. This is a real rapper's theme music. Sing to it. This how you cook up some dope with no powder. Don't turn on that stove. Just Hi, this is Calvin Burrell, inviting you to join me each Saturday at midnight until 4 a.m. Sunday morning for the best in reggae music, right here on WHCR 90.3 FM. Everything will be irie. WHCR 90.3 FM, New York.
And we are back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. And this is the time where we share some of our favorite news stories of the weeks. The week, the ones we hated, the ones we loved, and the ones that just made us want to tweet. Um, so we're going to start off. Alyssa has a story she wants to share you know, for I the news roundup. I had so many stories to yeah. share, but unfortunately, we are running 10 minutes behind today because we had a little bit of an extended conversation about Cuba, which was great. Um, so unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to get into the many stories that I wanted to talk about. But the most important story that I want to talk about this week that has nothing to do with the election is that Chicago is the first major city to repeal attacks on menstrual supplies yeah. such as tampons and pads and to me it's like crazy that in 2016 when half of the population of this country in fact more than half of the population of this country 51 percent of people living in america are women and yet in most major cities women are still paying a premium to buy menstrual supplies because they have to pay a tax on them marilyn and i were coming home from i think dinner earlier this week and she said to me do you know they tax for tampons and I was like, yeah. And she goes, how the hell are they going to tax me for like a natural occurrence? I can't control this. Right. And she was, but um, in New York State, the um, New York State Assembly just passed the bill um, to get rid of the tax as well, waiting for the Senate to do something. But it's the Senate and it's Republicans, so who knows? You know, and I had this argument with somebody the other day about it who came, you know, onto my page and they said, yeah, well, you know, like it, there's a tax on toilet paper and like there's a tax on condoms and there's a tax on toothpaste. And my argument was like, okay, well, just because you're bringing up the fact that there's a whole bunch of other items that should be non-taxable doesn't mean that menstrual supplies should also be taxable. Right, but also, I mean, I think that this would bother me less if women made as much to the dollar as men, but they don't, so it's like another way for that we are... Be careful are, what you wish for, Jackie. I mean, it he can have one like or the a other. nominal tax, but it's not. It adds up to a lot of money, and we are all, like, if you menstruate, you need to buy these items, and if you menstruate, you are more likely to be making less money doing the same work as men it's not anyway. my fault that i'm a man and i'm awesome and you're not jackie uh, i mean you are a man i don't know about the second part you, oh. you should have to walk but... around in the pregnant suit for like a week oh yes. god that sounds horrible yes. I feel like i'm pregnant right now anyway <laughs> um don't they have like now these panties where like you can thanks. period panties yeah. thanks thanks they're i are they're, you the thanks? Ads, no you... thanks is the brand name of these you're period welcome. panties but they're expensive they're i mean you see ads for them on the subway everywhere in new york now which i think is kind of awesome that they're advertising all over the place and they were banned from the subway there was a big controversy about these ads oh. because a lot of men were like oh that grosses us out we don't want to look at it and I told a lot of women Stanley were like well, we don't want to look at your crotch when you're manspreading so well no deal the with mta it. had to walk it back because they were allowing the breast augmentation right ads, so. but not the things ads. but so the problem with things again is that yeah this is cool they're like these period <laughs> panties whatever you're such a jerk, so stanley's Stanley. manspreading they're, they're 50 they're 50 bucks a pair for they a are. pair of underwear. I will so say, yeah, there's definitely a privilege aspect to being able to buy a pair of Thinks. However, it should be noted that Thinks is actually donating pairs of those underwear. For every like pair that somebody in the United States buys, they donate a pair to a woman in Africa. That's cool. um, Because a big reason why women in uh, third world countries drop out of school is because they menstruate and there's no, like, they don't have period supplies. It's a big so issue. they have to stay home and they 
right. can't get an education. Like it's the number one reason why women in third world countries drop out of school. So I will give them credit and I guess for the fact that they're donating them. Like for a pair of underwear and then you don't have to buy tampons or pads anymore that it'll even out. I don't know. It seems expensive. But that is, that is cool. <laughs> well, I'm happy for the progress there. Yeah. On what's going on down there? All right, guys. So uh, we're going to move it along. We actually have on the line with us a friend of the show. We have Chad R. McDonald. You know, Megan Kelly, she might be bleeding out of her wherever, according to Donald yeah, Trump. Right. So that's a good segue into um, our good friend Chad <laughs> talking about Donald Trump. Yeah. So so Chad wants to talk about Donald Trump. So, Chad, um, you know, we've had him here on the show a few times. Uh, I mean, when we think of Donald Trump, the sexism, the um, misogyny, I mean, every the racism, the xenophobia, xenophobia. Uh, everything. I mean, he just says any and everything, and it's like he gets a pass. What do you think about that? Well, folks, hi, hi everyone, by the way. Thanks Morning. for having me on again. Uh, what we're seeing here is we're seeing basically the Republican Party morph into something horrible. Uh, more horrible, that is. I mean, uh, throughout the whole show, you've been talking about women's rights, uh, rights of people of color, uh, uh, diplomatic relations, how important they are to, to be set up. And uh, that's basically all on the table to just get completely smashed down. Uh, the Trump campaign is uh, taking over the entire election news coverage, as you know, as we all know. He's been getting nothing but free coverage from the media due to his outrageous statements. But the most concerning thing about it is uh, the escalating violence we're seeing at the rallies, uh, the threats of violence uh, for the convention should he, uh, should his uh, nomination be contested or overturned, which honestly is really not going to happen. He's going to get the nomination at the walk. Mm. But we're seeing uh, a rise of uh, neo-fascism. We're seeing uh, hate groups uh, uh, just out in the open now. What he's doing, what the Trump campaign is doing, is they are mainstreaming hate groups and their rhetoric in a way that no other candidate has ever done before. Right. Uh, this is extremely dangerous. It sets a very bad precedent. Um, we've all seen footage of people at the rallies being thrown out, uh, and with Trump himself saying, punch them in the face, take them out on the stretcher, various things. Um, He's made horrible comments about Hispanic people, about women, about people of color, about Muslims. Uh, he's incited violence over and over again. And he's really changed the equation on this election because he's even got his supporters now talking about taking their guns to the voting booth. So we're talking about straight-up physical voter intimidation now. Yeah. So there's a lot, of, a lot of equations being changed with, uh, with Trump's campaign right now that is fundamentally altering the way that America is doing politics. Right. That's absolutely right. And, and, you know, speaking of all the things that Trump is getting away with, um, it's like, you know, he has a platform. He says anything that comes out of his mouth and he gets more support. But it's like, you know, Chad, and I know you mentioned this to me early in the week that you were actually voicing some opposition, but you couldn't get away with it because it was on Facebook. Could you just briefly tell us what happened there? Get thrown out of Trump's rallies for speaking against him. You can get arrested if you protest in front of his building, as we saw yesterday with the crushed Trump rallies. But now, and uh, Alyssa knows what I speak of on, on this, if you run, say, a Facebook fan page with political opinions, and I run several, uh, if you speak out against... Uh, I have been banned from Facebook, suspended, had my profile suspended three times now. Each time I have been suspended from Facebook, it has been because 
I have spoken out against racism and bigotry. And each time I've been reported and put in Facebook jail. Um, I made a meme about Donald Trump uh, making fun of how he didn't immediately disavow the KKK. Um, and that got reported by masses of Trump supporters. Because what he's doing is he's the great unifier, all right. He's unifying white supremacists. He's unifying gun nuts. And he's unifying, like, key parties, neo-nazists, all to unify together and attack people whose opinions they don't like. I'm just curious, Chad, which is, you know, obviously, you know, I run a big Facebook page. We've been speaking out a lot against Trump. I have not gotten attacked. Do you think that just something that you said just got seen by a bunch of Trump supporters that, um, you know, just decided that they didn't like it? They reported you. I mean, is that that what that's that's what you're saying, essentially? Screenshots of the graphs. You can watch in a Facebook page. They have insights of how well your posts do, the reach you have, how many people see it. They even should break it down, like who saw it and where and what gender they were, what age they were. They also show you your spam reports. And every time I post anything to do with Trump, my spam reports go through the roof. Now, even though I'm not posting anything that violates the Facebook community standards, that will get pulled down. Because after so many uh, reports, the Facebook algorithm just kicks in and automatically boots you off. That's really interesting. I It's just so different than my experience on Facebook right now, which I guess, I mean, I this is not in regards to fan pages, but I feel like every time I log into Facebook, um, all I see is, I mean, I do not support Trump, but all I see is anti-Trump stuff, which is good, but it's like also overwhelming. I'm just like trying to avoid <laughs> Facebook a little bit. Right. So it's intense. It's like a battleground on Facebook happening between all the candidates and political parties. It's, it's really intense. And it's not just like on the right. There's a huge right. Facebook war going on right now between the Bernie people yes. and the Hillary people. It's never ending. But I mean, there is something to be said about, um, you know, I have encountered the fact if a lot of people do report something as spam, then Facebook doesn't review it right away. They just automatically block it yeah. without. And that, that that's definitely an issue that Facebook should address um, because, you know, a bunch of people could get together to report your post and your post could be something that's not actually spam. So that's absolutely something that Facebook should address moving forward just to ensure that uh, things that don't violate their terms and service aren't being pulled down um, just because a lot of people who disagree with them are reporting them. No, that's happened to me a couple of times where my page has been like, I've like been in danger of having my page suspended because it's something I posted on my fan page and I don't post anything ridiculous either. So I don't. Oh, really, Stanley? Yeah. Was it something controversial? No, not at all. Um, so um, I shared a post from Christians from Michelle Bachman, which is like a spoof fan page. It's hilarious. It's a satire page. And the photo was like a white guy, a, black, a white guy with his white wife, and it was a black baby. And it says, "If God doesn't exist, how come? Then who's getting my wife pregnant? Checkmate, atheist." And my page. <laughs> I was reported for that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. So it's weird out here in these streets. I reported you. Sorry. But I think <laughs> the one thing that we should make clear, just in case you're listening to this segment, is I don't think anybody is saying that, like, the Donald Trump campaign is working with Facebook to shut down opposition right. like that. I don't really think that's what ha- what's happening. I just think that, you know, there are a lot of people on Facebook and they see something that they don't like. And so they get a group of their friends together to go report it. And, you know, then then it gets pulled well, down same thing with the Bernie L- campaign. And he has even publicly admonished people that are doing that. But it's like it becomes like supporters of these candidates often. I mean, it's weird because I do think that Trump is like totally asking for it, like literally asking people to take part in these actions, whereas Bernie, I don't think is. Right. Um, 
Um, but it turns into like this, you know, mad mob of its own. I can't wait for the Trump rally in New York. Oh, oh no, well, I can. I'll be there. It's interesting. I didn't you know about the card. voter intimidation thing that Chad brought up about people bringing their guns to the polls. But I just like remember, remember when there was like one member of the new Black Panther Party that like stood outside a polling location. I think it was in yeah, I remember that. And everybody lost their minds, and like now Trump is demanding that everybody bring their guns to the polls. It's, really it's, it's crazy. Conservatives have such a double standard when it comes it's to beyond. things like that. Welcome to America, guys. On that note, we are wrapping up the news roundup, and we are going to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. When we come back, we're going to start a conversation about corporate, con- co- uh, corporate corruption and global greed. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard. WHCR 94.3 FM, New York. Okay. Hello, motherfucker. Hey, hi. How you doing? It's Weezer F, baby. Come and take a beer and on it's all it This is Ricky Jones, and I'd like to invite you to tune into my new show. What you gonna do? Unlocked. Where we will be dealing with issues like mass incarceration, reentry, juvenile justice, and more. Comes on Wednesday, four to five, on WHCR ninety point three FM, the Voice of Hope. With Ricky Jones. WHCR. 90.3 FM, New York. I'm Millie Rock on any block. Woo! Drink Hennessy with applesauce. Ah! Take naps all day through the day. Selena says prep for your segment. I say okay. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM, WHCR. Are the voice of Harlem. I've been listening to previous shows and I sound horrible. I don't know how you guys understand the word I say. We don't. I speak 10,000 words a minute and then I slur. And it made me realize I had to stop coming here drunk. So today I only had seven glasses of whiskey before I walked into the studio because I care about you and I care about all of your thoughts. But because you guys can't reach me because I'm in the studio and you don't know the address, you can't stop me if I am drunk. Am I? Maybe. Probably so. Probably. So anyways, guys, we are here and we are having this conversation about big businesses and corporations and how they're ruling the world. But before we go to that point, I just want to mention that if you missed the first half of the show, we talked about Cuba and how America and Cuba had beef to begin with and how that beef is slowly subsiding because a black guy is cool with Fidel Castro and Raul. And we may see a day when the embargo with Cuba is gone. And then we had our news roundup where we talked about some of the things that were going on, period panties, whether it was the period panties. Um, I guess commercials on a train whatever you want to call those posters up there and then we talked about the bill that would remove taxes from tampons which is a good thing for women um, doesn't really bother me much I don't care so it means your girlfriend spends less money exactly and she, she got more money to spend she could take, take you take out your, for your birthday she, she could take you out to Red Lobster so it does <laughs> affect you oh yeah I'm going to Red Lobster today anyways guys <laughs> listen to Beyonce you'll understand later so anyways um and then we talked to Chad, who said he's been getting some attacks from Trump supporters who don't like some of his posts, which is weird because when I post things, Selena reports me and she tells me she's going to report me. So maybe they should be like her and just tell me to my face right before they press the report button. I do report people all the time, what by do, the way. What are you on for? Well, you, you're not on Twitter. 
You I might rep- be reporting on Facebook. No, Instagram. I report people on Instagram. I've Why? reported family members when they put offensive things up that I think should all the time. All the time. Why I don't you just suggest country. it with them directly? Well, some people I don't know, I report oh, them well, and then I unfollow. Some people like are like ridiculous. They'll put up full blown sexual intercourse photos right. on Instagram and they'll be like so bored right now. I <laughs> I t- don't report people. I have done it a couple times where I've seen like blatant like racist hate speech that's like really really like the n-word yeah oh wow (laughs) that is see i the only time i've ever reported something is like when it's a threat when it seems like an actual threat against a person or a group um but you know like i i have to come down and play the other the bad card like you know there's a lot of speech that i find objectionable that Mm -hmm. i disagree with especially when people say racist things like the Mm -hmm. n-word or like the things that are posted on things trump supporters say which is a great facebook page yeah that that, uh you know but you know what like i you know like at the same time like as a civil rights attorney like i may not agree with what you have to say but i'll defend your right to say it even if it's objectionable so long as it doesn't cross the line into being actually violent and you know threatening so let me ask you, ask you guys a question and you can just give me a yes no answer please just roll with me guys we know what happened what if- the last time <laughs> no we don't i erased that part from the show no one knows now no but what if you had a situation where there was someone on instagram who was posting all these different like hate things on there and they were posting weird pornographic things and you tried to unfollow them but you couldn't and you tried to report them and nothing happened they were completely autonomous and then when you asked why you were like well they have fifty thousand followers how would you feel about that, Selena? Well, sorry, pardon me. Would you? Do you think like that'd be fair? Yes or no? No. Alyssa, fair for what? Would it, <laughs> just not. Just please clarify yeah. the question. I'll sure, answer. Sure, sure, sure. So, would you, do you think it'd be fair that you would not be able to report someone for posting inappropriate things on Instagram? Not because be able I, to. No. Yes. I, I think you should be able to. Whether or not you should do it is different. Okay, Jackie. Yeah, I agree with Alyssa. All right, thank you. So the reason I asked this question and I linked it to Instagram because I wanted to make it as relatable as possible. Yes. What we are facing right now, and thank you guys so much. For <laughs> rolling You're with punches. so welcome. <laughs> Except for you, Jackie, stupid Ooh. loser. Um, what we are facing right now are 25 corporations who exist in this universe, and they are so powerful. They have so much money. They have so many lawyers. <coughs> oh, listen. That, that they are they are almost autonomous to entire countries. And what do I mean by that? That they can pretty much go wherever they want to find the best package so there's an organization that provides consulting to nestle and walmart and gm motors and they just evade taxes by whenever taxes come their way or they're told they have to pay taxes they'll pick up their entire organization and move to a new place so they were in ireland they moved to switzerland and now they're in the cayman islands and no one can stop them because they literally have more money than all the than the countries they've been in so when the countries go to attack them they just let off their team of lawyers and the conversation is dead in the water this is the situation we're facing right now so to put it in basic terms, this is like the Instagram user who has 50,000 followers. And because they have so much followers and so much influence, Instagram's like, you know what? We can't really do anything about them. But instead of just, you know, maybe turning off your Instagram and not using it anymore, when you're dealing with corporations this powerful, there's no way you can turn away from them. So corporations like Walmart, corporations like Twitter, which has $2.92 billion in available assets today, Organizations like Nestle, who, even though California has a water drought, can continue to use as much water as they would like and has over $1.3 billion in available assets, have more money than entire countries. And not just regular countries like, you know, 
Haiti or maybe a Jamaica or maybe um a Venezuela. No, I'm talking about Apple, which has more available funds as we speak than you, the United States of America. And now you're asking yourself this question. How did these companies get so big that they could just evade all responsibility and power from any other country? Well, the answer is a lot simpler than you could expect. It's us. And when I say us, I mean American people, I mean voters, I mean elected officials from the U.S., from Europe, from England, from all over the world who have put them in a position to do whatever they want. And in this conversation, we're going to be breaking down how we got to a point where the U.S. and other places have a serious situation of runaway inequality, how these corporations are growing in power, what they're doing to grow in power, and what we can do about it. And to start off this conversation, I have just a very simple question, and it's a bit left field, but I want you guys to work with me. So what do you think the pay ratio is between a CEO and a regular worker? So what I mean by that is like, is it 10 to 1, 5 to 1, things like, like that. It's like 30 so, to 1. So let's just say 30 to 1. Jackie, what do you think? Uh, I don't know. I feel I'll, like Alyssa would know. I'll come back to you then, Selena. 100 to 1. 100 to 1. A thousand to 1. A thousand to 1. All right. So you guys want to know the answer? Yeah. Wait, wait. Are we playing the prices right? I'll put one more dollar <laughs> on that. <laughs> the person who gets it the closest, I will buy them a beer. And Selena, I'll buy you a sippy cup. Uh. So... <laughs> Apple yes, so juice. You don't, you want to know what you don't know what the real ratio is? What is it? 844 to 1. So I win. Oh. Yeah, so yeah, that's right, Selena. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was getting a sippy cup. That's Yo, right. you buying her a beer. I'm going to hold you to that. No you got to buy me wine no cuz I'm allergic to, to beer. Have some more beer, Jackie. Oh, no. So, for every $1 a person in this room makes, a CEO makes $844. Literally. It's not even a joke. And you're asking yourself, how did this happen? We all know it happened because what companies started to do was give CEOs stocks in the company. So the better the company did, the more money you made. And one of those nice, funny laws that Ronald Reagan helped to get rid of or helped to relax was stock buybacks. Because one of the ways you can increase the value of your company is by buying back the stock. So what would hap- what's happening now and what you're seeing is these companies go public and then they're buying back their own stocks. And the fewer stocks that there are available, the higher the value value of your company goes so now and because there's no regulation on this there's no taxing on this the value of the company is going up the the paycheck of the ceo is going up and the pay of the regular worker is going down because they're taking money from supported services to workers and for trainings and higher salaries to pay to pay for buying back these stocks and all of a sudden that gap is expanding and then all of a, when you have a country like say us that says well this is getting weird we need to tax you for this. These companies have so much money, and because of globalization and the power of the internet, they are literally moving. Or, or they can I just jump in for a second? Yes. Or they convince poor people that you know if that the government there's too much government, and mm-hmm. that you know they're going to raise your taxes, and everything's going to go to hell, and you know they scream communism whenever you talk about uh, social democracy, yeah. and so they convince poor people that would benefit from democratic policies of taxing the rich at a higher rate mm-hmm. to believe that that is you know going to lead to communist Russia, and that you know we can never do that, and then they vote for Republicans that then increase the power and the monetary value of some of these corporations. Very true. So, and like Alyssa mentioned, and and they can't do that. They completely move and go to a new place and more or less take over that country because they have more money and resources than them. 
So I want to go back to what Alyssa was talking about just now so I can include you guys in the conversation. And if you guys listening want to be included as well, you can give us a call at 212-650-6903. Again, that is 212-650-6903. And my question for you is why has there been so much pushback from, from poor people who these policies hurt? And I'm throwing it because, back out there, you guys. Because they've been sold the propaganda that is Fox News and the right wing media for yeah. so long. I mean, we were talking about this yesterday when we did our guest appearance on 950 uh, Lounge. If you missed that yesterday, you should definitely check it out. We'll post the link sometime later today. Uh, but that's a big part of what I talked about when I talked about this year's presidential race is that you have a lot of disenfranchised people on the right that are going for Donald Trump and a lot of disenfranchised people on the left that are going for Bernie Sanders. And a big part of that is the income inequality issue is that people. People feel like they're working harder than ever before, and yet their wages are remaining stagnant, and they want to know why. And people on the left will explain it as, well, because we keep giving tax cuts to the rich. But people on the right will explain it as there's too much government. I also think that there is a sort of misconception by lower-income whites in this country that opportunity still exists, right? That this is the land of opportunity, that if you make it, if you work hard enough, you can be the one that's the CEO that's making this large income. And so that's where we see this differentiation where oftentimes you see lower income communities of color who are like, well, not for us because we are still people of color. So it doesn't matter how successful we are in our industry. Like we, we don't have the same opportunity as white folks and white folks see themselves in these bigger offices, right? In these large corporate um, communities. And so they say, oh, you know, for my kids, if they go to college or if, you know, I work hard enough, I can make something of myself. Even if that possibility is so remote because, Oftentimes you see these really rich, you know, Ivy League grads stepping into this office that have already been born into privilege and then continue to accrue um, a tremendous amount of wealth that they've already been born into. So I think that that's where it really stems from. There's certainly a certain amount of propaganda coming from the media. um, But I think that ultimately we see this differentiation between poor whites that see themselves um, and, and have this misconception, right, that opportunity still exists, where I don't really think it does for most people. Selena? Um, To answer your question, another thing that the GOP has done really well when it comes to propaganda um, and using that to galvanize lower class white people and to get their votes is blaming illegal immigration. Right. Mm -hmm. This is something that Donald Trump has propagated his whole campaign around. He talks about banning and sending back every single 11.7 million undocumented immigrants back to their homeland countries and even banning Muslims and, and Syrian refugees from coming to our country. Basically, what he's telling lower class white people is the reason why you don't have a job, the reason why you don't have access to upward mobility, the reason why you don't have opportunity in our country is because an, uh, an undocumented person is taking your job and taking your position and taking your livelihood. And they've and, and he has succeeded. Right. There are so many people that come out to these rallies. They've even banned this peaceful his um his peaceful Islamic woman was at this um Donald Trump rally and they booed her out. They were like, leave, get out. And right. all of this hatred is just being used to distract people. Well, to jump off of that and to really address what I mentioned before, ultimately why we see young people going out for Bernie and these massive numbers, nobody understands. They're like, oh, why are they going out for this old white guy? But this old white guy is very skeptical of corporations that have taken advantage Corporations, banks, you know, big industries have taken advantage of young people who don't see that opportunity available of any 
ethnicity or socioeconomic background because even people that were born into some wealth in the steady middle class, right, have been burdened with such tremendous student loan debt and they see their opportunity just completely wiped away. So you see these older generations going out for Trump because they still are deluded enough to think that they have a chance. But young people, especially young college graduates who are saddled with hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt that have to take jobs that they don't want to be able just to get out of debt because they've been set back from the get-go um, are a little, I think, more realistic about the future of this country. So thank you very much for that, guys. We do have to go on a quick break. Before we do, I want to make sure we get to one of our callers. We have two callers on the line right now. Right. So Jade, he was talking about how he thinks that it has more sort of do with how the, the government perceives us. So Jade, let your voice be heard. Yes. Uh, thank you. Um, uh, I'm, I'm listening to the, the conversation. And I, I deal with this all the time in my head. And, well, you see, there's different kind of people in this world. We have, um, okay, we have uh, so-called, we have, in America, we identify ourselves as black. We identify as and white. But it, that's an envelope. But if you open that envelope of black and white, you'll see who you are dealing with. And right now, as long as we use black and white, you're fighting an invisible opponent. You must identify and get to know who you're dealing with. We are, like Donald Trump, for instance, right? Um, the people who appeal to him, or he appeals to so far, are people with, you see the character they have. A lot of them, they want to fight, they want to punch. You know, um, those are, those, Donald Trump, those are, those are people who have mostly dual citizenship between this country and Israel. That's what's going on here. Thank you very much for letting your voice be heard, Jay. We do have to go on a quick break. When we come back, I'll give a, a bit of a response to Jay's comment, and we'll continue our conversation. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM, WHCR, the voice of Harlem. We are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM, WHCR, the voice of Harlem. What you heard before I came back on air was Brother Dalton with the God Squad turning up for Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something about Brother Dalton. That man is the coolest guy I know. And I'm not really a big gospel fan, but there are two songs that I love from gospel. Ultra Light Beam from Kanye West and whatever Brother Dalton is playing. So make sure you check out his show whenever you are available. He's on from 6 a.m. until 11 a.m. on Sundays. But anyways, guys, bringing us back here. And right before we left, we had a caller on our line by the name of Jay who said that people are focusing on the black and white and it's not the black and white. It is the black and white. It actually very much so is the black and white. Racism and institutionalized racism plays a big part in what we're seeing and this country and rising income inequality and corporation power. And Jackie mentioned something about people who are rich, who have money, they can like kind of move forward. A black, a black college graduate over the course of their life will have less wealth than a white high school dropout. So a black college graduate, average wealth is about $25,000. A white college drop, high school dropout is $48,000. And this is not just something made up. This actually comes from the Labor, um, the Labor Institute. And this is a very real problem that we're facing. But I know Selena made up some comments, and Alyssa wanted to push back on that. So I want to throw it back to Alyssa. No, I actually wasn't pushing back on it. I was pointing out the hypocrisy of something that Selena mentioned earlier about the rhetoric. You asked a question about what do you think convinces poor or whiter people to vote for Republicans. That was like how you opened 
happen this. Selena mentioned something about how on one hand uh, they're saying that um, illegal immigrants are taking your jobs, right? But another, on the other hand, another thing that you hear from that group of white Americans is that illegal immigrants are taking free stuff, right? They're all on welfare. They're all taking free stuff. Right. So it's like, which is it, right? Because it can't be both. Either A, the immigrants are taking your jobs or B, they're taking your money because they're collecting welfare. But they, they, like, it's not either. It's either they're not lazy or they are lazy, but it's not both. And so even that line coming from the right makes no sense because it's totally hypocritical and it doesn't fit with any narrative. It's just the kind of stuff that they are being sold. Thank you very much for listening. And it's very true. So we do have Brother Omar on the line. He's back for another round with us. Brother Omar, let your voice be heard. You know, uh, the the sad part about this conversation is it's all of the above. Okay, when when you discriminate against 50, close to 52% of the population, which happens to be female, some of our brightest minds, what do you expect? How many How many women are on the boards there on Wall Street or Madison Avenue. You could count them probably on one hand, okay? I just lost a cousin who graduated the top of her class, Harvard University. At the, we just buried her yesterday. She was a lawyer, 40, 41 years, uh, 46 years young. No one, never, no one even heard of her, but she was working for this corporate uh, establishment. She could have been running it. Okay, no one even heard of this young lady, but she was tops in her class at Harvard University. So when you look at the way we treat our women and we look at our female population, they've always been secondhand, uh, second class citizens, rather. And these are some of our brightest minds. Absolutely. I mean, think about the top earning industries, certainly in this country alone, right? In finance, in technology, you don't see many people of color, you don't see women and you definitely don't see women of color. I mean, they are so underrepresented in these top paying industries. And even when you find women in technology, in finance and business, you don't see them in managerial roles, right? You don't see them as directors. You don't see them as CEOs. Maybe you see them in HR or marketing at higher levels, but that's it. You don't see women in these top roles in leadership positions. So even though your company can boast that you're hiring women and that you're an equal opportunity employer and that you're you know, casting a wide of the net as possible, and at the lower level, you're hiring minorities, you're hiring women. If you're not promoting within your company and promoting women and promoting people of color um, and disenfranchised groups within your own company. And I mean, it doesn't happen. What we see at the top of all these industries is white men, typically, maybe once in a while, a white woman, but it's very rare for even that. I think we're starting to starting to see things shift, but there's been a serious pushback on by corporations to kind of skirt away. And I want to talk about that. But before we do, we do have a caller online who's been very patient. I want to make sure we get to him. James, let your voice be heard. Oh, hello. Hi, James. Okay. I understand the issue of the uh, employment of uh, these politicians that are putting. I don't know if you you remember the phone company in New York and in the United States hired nearly, I would say, over a trillion women to work on the telephone system as switch operators. Today, you hardly ever hear any women... In the, in the telephone business because the phone company was broken up because it became a monopoly. And secondly, a lot of those women that worked as telephone operators were replaced with computers. Now, a good percentage of the jobs today 
are being replaced by computers and technology. So in a sense that employment will come to almost to a point where only certain jobs will be open to people that are connected. But the majority of the people that work will no longer have a job anymore. Thank you very much, James, for those comments. I just want to make a, a bit of a course correction. I don't know the exact number, but I'm pr- about 99.9% sure it was not it a was trillion not a women. Jackie? I mean, that's an interesting argument that you hear a lot. It's sort of a Luddite argument, like that technology is going to uh, remove all jobs. And I don't know that I completely agree. I think that there still is innovation, but who knows? I can't predict the future. And I think that a lot of jobs have been either taken over by technology or have been outsourced to cheaper labor in other parts of the world, which Thank- is which is something that corporations do because they don't – They're they're – purpose is to make money. Thank so you so much for that, Jackie. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm jumping on top of you like that because I want to beat you up, obviously, one. But go two, because you, go, you jump right into the point that I want to get to. So one of the ways that these corporations have been skirting the laws and getting away from paying people equal wages and hiring women, their pushback has been by taking their businesses elsewhere. GM can take their business to Mexico where the labor is way cheaper and the, and the regulations are a lot lower. So they don't have to worry about things like polluting the water or paying someone a living wage or providing health insurance. And the question I want to ask you guys is, we know why America is so screwed up, but a lot of these other countries are not, a lot of these other developed nations are not as like deep in income, income and wage inequality as America is. So why are these corporations so able to get away with doing these things in, say, England or um, Italy and other places like that? And I saw Alyssa's hands raised, so I want to make sure I get to her first. So, Alyssa? Well, actually, I don't, I'm not going to answer your question, so you should skip me because I was actually going to make a comment. Okay, no problem. So, Jackie? So why can they get away with doing yeah. this? Because, again, their sole purpose, I mean, it's, it's like within, it's their fiduciary responsibility as a corporation to do whatever it takes to make the most profit. Well, yeah, we understand that. And we, but like, it's their fiduciary responsibility to make money, but countries and governments have power to try and regulate them. So now we know that when America tries to regulate, they move to other places. Sometimes they go to to underdeveloped countries where they can use their money and influence to kind of run how that system is going to function. So you see a lot of companies that move to certain countries in Africa because they want to go there and strip them of their their resources. Telephone companies aren't in certain parts of Africa right now stripping them of resources and, um, and pardon, I'm having a bit of a brain freeze, but like, you know, there's certain like grains that over there they used to build cell phones with and you can get it over there for dirt cheap because labor is so low if even if it's any labor cost at all. And I saw Selena's hands raised too, so I want to get to her. I want I wanted to answer your question. I want I don't know if this is the correct answer, but I'm thinking maybe the the reason why these corporations are getting away with it is because they're in cahoots with the government. I mean a lot of government officials I don't feel um are, are more privy to corruption and to make money as long as they're getting a piece of the deal. We see that a lot when it comes to Washington, our our, our legislators and lobbyists. Like, how many politicians are in bed with lobbyists? You see that on the left and you see that on the right, even with candidates like Hillary Clinton. So I think that, you know, money does run the world. But you know what runs the world even more? Greed. And everybody is greedy. Well, I mean, that has been the, you know, the the crux of the Bernie Sanders campaign, which is that there is too much money in politics, right? And what does money buy? Money buys influence. And what do you have when you have influence? You have power. And so part of the reason why these corporations have been able to amass so much power it has to do with the fact that there's been so much money injected into the political system that is given to politicians who then 
take that money and they use it to benefit big moneyed corporate interests that are supplying them the money to keep their campaigns running, to keep lining their pockets, to keep them going on all these trips all over the world, visiting different places. And they like those things. They, they, the politicians like to have money in power. They need the money to get reelected. So they keep taking the money from the corporations and the corporations need the politicians to pass favorable legislation such as tax breaks and loopholes that allow corporations to move their business offshore to offshore the money, et cetera, et cetera. So there is, as Bernie Sanders has said numerous times, a feedback loop between the amount of money that is injected into the political system and the amount of benefits that big corporations get that allow them to grow big and to grow powerful. So my question for you is, say it was a perfect world and we have politicians ready to cooperate. How do we stop these big corporations from getting away with this kind of murder? I mean, if the politicians would stop them from getting away from this, from this, from this separate murder. Say they were ready for it, but they didn't know what to do. What would we want them to do? Well, I mean, taxes, raise yes. taxes on corporations, close loopholes that allow close corporations loopholes. to to move their money offshore. Uh, I would also like to see them change that a lot of corporations actually move their corporate headquarters overseas so that they can avoid paying U.S. taxes. There should be a reverse tax on that. And actually, funny enough, some of the, one of the things that, believe it or not, and even a broken clock is right twice a day, Donald Trump has provo- pro- promoted some kind of tariff tax. Like there was an article in the New York Times this morning about an air conditioner company called Carrier. They moved their plants to Mexico because it was cheaper to make the goods in Mexico. Donald Trump would actually tax them to bring goods back in to sell those goods back in the United States. I don't agree with any pretty much anything else that's part of the Trump platform, but that's another way that you can make it so that companies don't want to go to Mexico, which is if it's going to cost them more money to have to import that good back into America, they're going to keep the factory here and they're going to make the goods here in America. Jackie? Yeah, I mean, I think both of you summed it up. Closed loopholes, we need to get out of bed with these corporations and our elected officials have to be held accountable. I mean, there are like conferences held where by um, heads of industry and ex-political leaders that talk about how to move your money overseas, right? Like how to move your money to the Caymans or move it to Europe. Um, there are like workshops being held. I mean, this is like such a systemic issue. It's not like a shady, like, oh, they're secretly doing this. It's like, well known that this is what corporations do to make the most money, and it's it's out of control at this but point. But here's the thing: these companies don't necessarily have to cover that, like be responsible for that tax. Because, say you you move your headquarters to I don't know um, Afghanistan, just because that's the first place I can think of. Oh, because of online purchasing now, you can have people purchase your things online and have it shipped from there, and whatever the extra tax is, put it on the back of the consumer. Because your overhead is going to be is going to be so much lower anyway, that tax probably wouldn't seem like a big deal to a consumer. So how does that? How, so those taxes might help on the front end with America, but how do you stop that? Well, because then the consumers don't buy the good. If the good is right. too expensive, then I'm not going to buy it. And if I don't buy it, then you're not going to make any money. But the thing is, if their if their expenses go down, well, they can price it at a point where they still make a lot of money hand over fist, but it's still decently priced for consumers. So let's look at Amazon. They have so many things now that they can price books or other products a little bit lower than just the general market can. So even though we know Amazon treats their workers poorly and that we know that Amazon makes it so that it's harder for things like bookstores to exist anymore, people invest their money into it and their products because they know it's cheaper. 
Right. No, I mean, Stanley, I, I think that's the reality that we're living in, where technology is has taken over so many markets. It's taken people's jobs. And I think it's even taken over industries. And I think that we are definitely moving in that direction where you can have an entire industry just built online and you can definitely evade taxes that way. Yeah. And I think we're moving in that direction. And that's the point that I want to get to, because we can do these taxes. We can talk about all these things that elected officials are doing. But. How do we regulate what the other countries are doing? How What are we going to do to put some kind of accountability online? How does that work, Jackie? Well, even beyond online, right, labor practices and things like that. I mean, we, it's very difficult. We're talking about a global economy. It's very difficult. And that's part of the problem here is that because we have better labor laws, right, like children are not allowed to work um, to manufacture goods in this country, right? So the issue is that corporations then find countries where that is allowed and acceptable. And re- typically, they're only, they only change their practices when consumers find out and admonish them and stop buying their product because of their labor practices. So I think that in general, there should be more transparency, um, mandated transparency, because I do think that consumers tend to um, prefer better labor practices and better... Um, just consumption practices in general, right? So there should be more transparency so that the consumer knows what they're buying and then they can make an educated choice because what we see is that oftentimes people just don't always opt for the cheapest thing, right? Despite what we think, despite what human nature seems to suggest. It's not always about buying the cheapest thing. When you find out that your jeans are being made by a 12-year-old child who's working 20 hours a day, and you know that, and that's presented to you as fact, you might be less likely to pick up another pair of jeans from H&M, right? Um, So there should be more consumer awareness and transparency. All right. I want to stop it right here, actually. And the reason I want to do that is because I want you guys to have a feeling of being incomplete and not having had a chance to really discuss everything and also not having all the answers. Because the truth is, we really do not have all of the answers at all. We are stuck in a situation right now where the average CEO is making $844 per hour for every dollar you make per hour, where the average family, white family, has the overall wealth of $151,000, Latino family $6,000, and the black family $5,000, where you have college graduates who are in so much debt that they cannot even account whatever their income is as actual money because it's all going back to paying bills and corporations are getting bigger and bigger, so much bigger that they don't even have to be accountable to the countries that they were founded in because if things get too tough, they can shift somewhere else. What am I saying? Am I saying that there's nothing that you can do about it? I am absolutely not saying that what i am saying though is you should be very very afraid because when apple products has more money than the entire united states of america and two-thirds of the power of the most powerful countries in this world we are in a position where the love of money and the love of power has superseded the love of people or even functioning governments if you are frustrated if you are angry understand that raising taxes on the rich and on corporations is one step but it is not the only step it is not the only answer we have to find a space where we can hold people accountable shift the way the conversation has been going from how do i get this corporation richer to how do we make sure that everyone has their fair share and everyone can grow if they want to without doing it on the backs of others but you know what the only way we might be able to do that is by destroying the whole system and i don't know if you guys are ready for that but until then guys we're going on a quick break when we come back it'll be the quickie and we'll tell you all about that guy merrick who obama appointed i kind of like him just kidding (laughs) 